I'm spinning in circles and talking to myself. Spinning in circles and talking to myself. Welcome to a new spin on autism. Answers with host and international speaker and performer, Lynette Louise. Besides working on her doctorate in psychophysiology, Lynette has raised eight children, six adopted, and four of them falling somewhere on the autism spectrum. Laugh with her, cry with her, as she talks to both experts and parents and takes you through the often confusing, sometimes frustrating, sometimes overwhelming, but always fascinating world of autism. Hello and welcome. This is a new spin on autism, Answers. I'm Lynette Louise, your story teacher host. And today, as all days, we're going to have a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful time. Remember, this is the place where the answer is defined by the question we ask. Well, that's always true, but we're admitting it. So um, I want you to know that today's question is autism. Do we seek to cope with it or to cure it? And I'll have a couple of guests to throw around some of their scientific ideas on that subject. Not necessarily that question. I might have to keep trying to get that one out of them, but we're definitely going to dig in and see what they know. Um, Hang in to the very end, because at the very end, as you all know, is my very favorite part, and I hope yours. It's stories from the road, where if we haven't already found the answer, I promise to give you one. (laughs) And just before that, okay, 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 the great guest giveaway. I think someday I'm going to figure out how to say that like Tony the Tiger. I always wanted to, but it never does come out just right. Anyway, so um, before we get into this couple of doctors that we're going to chat with, um, I want to tell you how I come to be chatting with them. Uh, And it's a really quick story. I just want to name drop here because if I name drop, that helps perk up your ears and get you listening. And then you think I'm wonderful because I know great people. So uh, anyways, a friend of mine, Annie Potts, quote unquote, um, yes, no, seriously, a friend of mine, Annie Potts, uh, loves these guys. She's always talking to me about these two doctors who have done wonderful things um, for her and that she really cares about. And I'm like, okay, okay, I'll get to it. Um, And then uh, just a little while ago, I asked her to do me a favor, and she goes, well, you have to do me one, too. (laughs) You have to connect with these dudes. So, um, yes, she was right. They're marvelous. We had a long conversation. They're so knowledgeable and so excited that they're willing to talk to all of us. Um, And they have some interesting ideas about um, autism. And one of the reasons my ears picked up is, um, you know, in the world of autism, everybody was into methylated B12. And that's as much as you ever heard that word, methylated. And I hope I'm pronouncing it correctly. And so when, um, when it worked for some kids and not for others and didn't turn out to be the great cure for autism, people moved on to the next thing and the next thing, and some people kept using it and some didn't. But it was no longer the new kid on the block. However, however, I do have um, an interest in the whole process because of it. So, and a curiosity and a lack of knowledge. So it's very exciting for me to speak with a couple of doctors who are going to inform us. And at the end of this show, I promise you, your head will be spinning, but you'll know more than you did when you first started up the podcast. So without continuing yada, yada, yang on my part, I'm going to introduce them. Uh, We're going to be speaking with, as I said, two doctors, and they're from the XR Institute. And I sure hope I say the names right because you know how bad I am at that, guys. Okay, Dr. Rosakis is a medical doctor, and Dr. Baki is a Ph.D., but that makes them both doctors. Uh, Dr. Baki is a Ph.D. in biochemistry, by the way. Uh, Together, they're working to apply what's known in the world of biochemistry and genetics to identify and treat the underlying causes of disease. Now, not that I'm saying autism is a disease because you're all going to turn off the podcast and not listen to the rest. Uh, let's just call it a brain disorder, and let's just agree to disagree if we need to on that one, and, and let's just go ahead and jump in and say hello to our wonderful guest. Hi, guys. Hi, hi Lynette. <laughs> hello, Lynette. <laughs> I bet you were wondering, when is she going to say Hello. <laughs> That was an awesome hello. I was impressed. That was great. Thank you. Um, oh, you're, you're more than welcome. And if it's okay with you, since there's two men on the other side of the line, I'm just going to keep calling you all guys. Um, and you can identify yourselves, okay, each time you speak, because otherwise 
you know, people won't know who, are, who they're listening to, whether it's Dr. Baki or Dr. Rosakis. So if you don't mind just saying, hi, this is Dr. Rosakis when you speak, or vice versa, okay? Okay. <clears throat> That's perfect. 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 Okay, wonderful. Uh, who wants to go first? Well, you started out with the concept of disease and what is a disease, and that's something that Dr. Baki and I talk about a lot. There are many disease names, such as rheumatoid arthritis or autism or ADHD, but to us, those are simply descriptive phrases of a constellation of symptoms, and we think the diseases, the names of diseases are going to, over time, evaporate and to replace them, we're going to identify specific errors in a patient's biochemistry and genetics that ultimately cause the symptoms that were called autism or were called rheumatoid arthritis or called migraine. So we're very much into um, identifying and understanding what, what causes uh, disease. Um, Dr. Baki has a PhD in that word methylation that you mentioned his postdoctoral work was in methylation and it's been extremely exciting for me to uh, work with Dr. Baki because he's taught me such a great deal about methylation and in fact he sent me a paper today um, about a study done in 2004 uh, which I think we should start with. Dr. Baki why don't you give us a sense of that uh, paper done in 2004 to uh, show how the scientific community has been looking into methylation, and, and let's talk about where it is today. I think that's yeah, a great absolutely. idea, but before he gets talking, I have to keep typing in so they remember it's actually my show because you guys are going to be so gifted. So I just want to um, say thank you very much. That was a beautiful introduction to the concept that we're actually always looking at the symptom, and I love that. I love what you said there. Okay, go. Your turn, Dr. Great. Bucky. Thank you, Annette. Again, this is Dr. Baki, and um, thank you for the wonder wonderful introduction as well. Um, as Dr. Ozakis was alluding to, uh, there are a number of papers out there in, in the scientific literature, obviously, that, uh, that seek to try to understand some of the underlying causes of um, autism. And one of them in particular from 2004 um, was really well ahead of its time from a methylation perspective. And uh, what they delved into were um, dysfunctional uh, or imbalances, I should say, in uh, methylation pathway biochemical intermediates. So these would be things like S-adenosylmethionine and glutathione, which I'm sure some of your listeners have, uh, are familiar with or have heard of, um, and other things maybe that they're less familiar with, like adenosine or cystothionine or cysteine. Um, a lot of these biomolecules are uh, interdependent on each other. And when they looked in the study at autistic and, and a control group of, of, quote, normally functioning children who did not have autism symptoms, uh, they found uh, striking differences between them in, in the levels that were measured of these very key biochemical intermediates. Um, and most of these are focused around what's called the methionine pathway. Uh, and the methionine pathway uh, is really the central hub of methylation. Um, and methionine is derived from the diet, so it would be obtained from protein sources when you eat food. Um, and that then is converted into a variety of other biomolecules uh, that are really important for helping to determine uh, how well someone's neurochemical uh, function is going to be their uh, immunological function, uh, glutathione in particular, uh, their level of oxidative stress that they might have in the cell, um, and a variety of other biochemical reactions that impact endocrine function and hormones, uh, which obviously in children is, is not as significant as it may be in adults because they haven't uh, really started to um, manufacture hormones to the levels that they will as they become teenagers and, and adults later on. Um, but what they found in, in looking at these various biomolecules is that in, in autistic children, they had uh, some very um, significant imbalances in, in a couple of key metrics. Uh, and they found in particular that uh, most of the critical methylating molecules like S-adenosylmethionine and methylfolate uh, were much lower than levels in the control groups. Uh, and these are particularly important because methylation is really the chemical currency by which 
your body functions on a daily basis. So they pass back and forth these little uh, subunits, these molecules that are, are very small relative to large proteins and, uh, and other uh, amino acids that are found in your bodies, uh, but they're very powerful. And so you mentioned methylcobalamin previously. Methylcobalamin is exactly that. It has a methyl group attached to a cobalamin structure. And that is an intermediate in the methionine pathway. And the reason I think that so many people were interested in methylcobalamin's role in autism is because that represents a critical juncture in the methionine pathway function. And in many patients, uh, particularly adult patients that we, that we treat on a daily basis, they, are, uh, they have underlying genetic predispositions, which predispose okay, we can't them. Give, can't give away the punchline too quickly here. That's the... Let's see. Let, 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 let's see. Let's see. No, no, no. You did great. Yeah, that was. That, that's yeah, just, what I was trying to tie in the methylcobalamin into the bigger picture. But yeah, it, Dr. Rosakis uh, probably stopped me short at a good time because uh, I tend to get so let's, very so, let, animated. Let, <laughs> I know. This is why I love Dr. Baki because as an MD, I don't, I don't have access to this depth of science, and so yeah. the yeah. the the combination of MD clinic patient care with the, you know, working in collaboration with a PhD, you know, is just the way it should be, quite frankly. So, so Lynette, did you, we want to be sure you're still with us here because we threw a lot I'm of curveballs at you. And if, in fact, I have a, a question. I'd like to know when you, okay, so you're looking at the, the methyl, let, and correct me every time I say something wrong because I don't want to misinform my listeners, but the methylated pathways. Um, I assume that you're seeing this as a foundational uh, situation where the, if we can get at that, then we change all the stuff that, that is emitted from that. But my, my question is, um, so let's say that that's true. What, is there something beneath that? Well, well, first of all, the reason it's true is because this thing called the methylation pathway, it literally turns on and off your DNA. <clears throat> so, so you can imagine how important that would be to be able to you know, control DNA activity. Furthermore, methylation is involved in how your body produces neurotransmitters. Wait a minute. So is this related to G-protein coupling then? I'm sorry. Say that again. If you're changing the DNA, does the methylated methylation, does that, is that related to G-protein coupling or is this a very different thing? No, this is actually different. This, when, when we're talking about methylating DNA, it's um, signaling. So it's turning, it's an on-off switch almost. So it, okay. it would almost be like, like binary, ones and zeros. So either okay, you have it. a methyl group or you don't, sort of. Yeah. Okay. Okay, go on. Sorry. So, so when Dr. Baki made the point that the methylation pathway is so important, you know, it, it, it's because it sits right in the middle of uh, how your body makes neurotransmitters, how your body uh, controls uh, DNA, uh, how your body fights oxidation, um, it, it's just a, like a CPU nerve center. It's like the chip in the middle of your computer because so many different uh, biological functions pass through methylation. And then this is why those doctors back in 2004 took a hard look at methylation to see if there was something wrong in this critical pathway. And lo and behold, uh, they found these differences between normal, normal children and those with autism. So we have to give them a lot of credit for, A, looking there, and, B, you know, finding these, uh, these uh, differences with regard to the molecule. So that was, that's the, the backdrop of which you spoke earlier, Lynette, when you said, oh, uh, methyl B12 was the, the rage back in the day. And, but, but what happened when you said that was very important because many times people focus on one singular substance and try to cure the world with it. And um, when you understand the methylation pathways, you quickly realize that methyl B12 is simply one player in the pathway. It's like an orchestra. And right. happens all the time. People say, oh, vitamin D does all these things. Yep. Or vitamin <laughs> it happens all the time. <laughs> Not the answer. Today it's uh, you know, methylfolate or whatever. So, so the key here is to remember that you have to look at the totality of the biochemistry, find all the different imbalances and disturbances, and then once you do that, um, then uh, you fix them. And okay, so now I'm going I'm to tell you, tell you a little story about somebody I, I advised to take SAM-E, um, and then I'm going to ask you to relate that to 
your expertise here. And then we're going to do a little reminder to everyone mid-show, and we'll get back at your scientific minds. I just want to give them a story so we can keep them alert. <laughs> so um, a young autistic woman that I know was talking, you know, actually via email, emailing back and forth with me the various uh, things she was dealing with, and I suggested to her that she try FAMI. And um, in her case, it made her hand still. So she'd had this problem with her hands where they were always uh, liberty gibbeting, you know, and she'd have to chew her nails constantly, and she'd pick at them, and she'd pick the skin off and pick the nails off. And she noticed very quickly after starting to take that that her hands calmed. Now, I have a question. Do you think that has any relationship with um, methylation? Absolutely. Yeah, and, and that's a, a great question. Uh, this is Dr. Baki, again, to remind okay. the listeners, just so they know uh, who is speaking. Um, SAMI is the second step in the methionine pathway. It's made from methionine, uh, and it combines with ATP, methionine does, to make SAMI, S-adenosyl methionine. So you get the adenosine portion from ATP. Um, SAMI is involved in about 40 reactions in the body. It's actually a master methylator, so it's one of the most, if not the most important methylation uh, biochemical intermediate that's produced. It is involved in um, some of those 40 reactions include neurotransmitter uh, metabolism. So when we're talking about dopamine in particular, uh, SAMI is the substrate, meaning it participates with an enzyme called COMT, which is catecholamine O-methyltransferase, and it helps to metabolize dopamine and dopamine metabolites, such as epinephrine, norepinephrine, normedinephrine, and metanephrine. So all of those, that's a mouthful, but all of those are made downstream from dopamine. And it could be a combination of low SAMI and or suboptimal COMT function because of a genetic abnormality in the gene that codes for COMT. Uh, so those two things coming together could predispose someone to imbalances in the catecholamines. And so when you take SAMI as a supplement, if we're deficient in it, it can help to rebalance those levels. And again, just like all of the other methylation intermediates, whether it be methylcobalamin or methylfolate, it's one substance uh, among many that are involved in, in rebalancing those pathways. So in her particular case with those tremors, it may have been very simply that she had um, imbalances in norepinephrine or epinephrine, uh, which are downstream metabolites of dopamine. So, yeah, I mean, dopamine's related to many, uh, you know, like Parkinson's and all those things when it comes to tremors. But even, even if she's picking um, in order to give herself something to focus on or to um, sort of pump herself up, that again is related to dopamine. So it makes sense to me too. This is really interesting. And I know I interrupted you, but I have to tell everyone, you are listening to a new spin on autism, Answers. And boy, are we ever getting some answers today. I'm Lynette Louise, your story teacher host. And remember to stay along for the whole ride because we're going to have, okay, 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 the great guest giveaway. And at the very end, stories from the road. And we are speaking with two marvelous and very intelligent, knowledgeable, awesome doctors with great voices, by the way, from the XR Institute, Dr. Rosakis and Dr. Baki. All right, if I interrupted you, go ahead and finish. <laughs> oh, not a problem at all. That was, uh, that was actually wonderful. Uh, it, was a, it was a good break because it allows us to transition then into, okay, if, if someone is low in SAMI or if they're deficient in SAMI uh, or they have an issue with COMT, what are the strategies that can be deployed in order to help someone uh, support their SAMI levels? And as you mentioned, you had advised this particular individual to supplement with SAMI. And, and that works for many, but it certainly doesn't work for all. And, and at XR, what we often do uh, in our clinical treatment protocols is to evaluate in the context of their entire methylation pathway evaluation, what their SAMI levels are, but also what is the relationship to SAMI to these other biomolecules. Because there are often instances when a patient responds better to providing the necessary raw materials for the body and the cell to make SAMI on its own. And we see this in follow-up lab testing. Uh, we, in, on some occasions, give patients SAMI directly, and their SAMI levels do improve over time with additional methylation support. And other times, we don't provide SAMI at all, but we can improve their capacity to make SAMI more efficiently by giving 
their engine, their body, uh, the necessary precursor so that they can do it uh, on their right. own. And, and both ways work. <clears throat> exactly, exactly. And, um, but here's, the, here's the, uh, the excitement, though, and that is that you know, here we are in 2004. These doctors are looking at the methylation pathways. They're looking at levels of SAMI, and they're looking at methyl B12 and glutathione, and, and they're saying, gee, there's something here. You know, the autistic children have levels that are not like, quote-unquote, you know, normal uh, children. And $4 billion later and 13 years of research, and out popped the Human Genome Project. Now, the Human Genome Project is white hot. I mean, it's up there with the germ theory of Lister. In fact, we're going to put a lecture together, call it From Germs to Genetics. Because Lister, as you recall... I recall Lister. Lister. I wrote a whole paper on the whole Lister thing, but please inform the the You you did. You're dating yourself, though, because Lister... I know. (laughs) Well, there was a time when people didn't understand what a bacteria was, or a virus, or a fungus. It was in 1870 that uh, a Dr. Lister came up and said, hey, I I'm, I'm see these little, these little things. They're, they're, let's call them germs. What are these things? I think they're causing disease. And everyone said, ah, you're crazy. What are you talking about? Germ theory. What's a germ? You know, no, I, the, these little things are causing the disease. I look in the lungs of pneumonia patients. I see these little spots in there. I, I think that's the cause. And everybody before that time thought that diseases were coming from you know, bad humors or, you know, evil spirits or, or what have you. And Lister tried to tell everybody to wash their hands, to not transmit these little things called germs. And, and then finally, when it was acceptable and accepted, then people started to realize that diseases were caused by germs, bacteria, viruses, etc. So that ushered in an, an entire uh, epic generation of antibiotics and therapies and, and, and logic to treat disease based on infection. Well, here we are today, and now we can do something very similar with genetics. We can actually look at genetics to understand the biochemistry. And the best way to understand that, and here's a story that might help, is to think of genetics uh, like the person who set the traffic lights and the speed limits and the stop signs in your city, right? When you're trying to drive from mm-hmm. point A to point B, you want those lights to be perfectly timed. You want green light, green light, green light, green light, green light. And we all hate it when we, we're driving and all of a sudden a green light turns red and we're stuck there and we're saying, what's wrong with this light? Uh, and, next, and if it's rush hour, then you're going to have a real problem because all these cars that are trying to get through that intersection, they can't because that, that light is not timed properly. It's malfunctioning. Or what if somebody posts the wrong speed limit on a highway? you're going to have congestion and traffic. Or what if somebody forgets a stop sign? Then cars are going to rush through the intersection and, and crash. Your genetics, uh, each of those stop signs, each of those uh, speed limits, these concepts I'm explaining are your enzymes. That's what's in your biochemistry. Your biochemistry is full of these little things called enzymes, which have a purpose. They, they, they convert one thing into another. They control the movement of of molecules throughout your body, just like cars are flowing through a city. So when they did the Human Genome Project, they looked very carefully at the genetics of the enzymes in the methylation pathways. So the enzyme, for example, that converts um, something into SAMI, like we talked about earlier, or the enzymes that create methyl B12, or the enzymes that create uh, methylfolate. Uh, All of these are part of the uh, methylation pathways. They discovered through through the Human Genome Project that some people have malfunctioning, or as Dr. Bakke explained to me one day, those enzymes are slow. They're not fast enough, or they're too fast. And when they looked at the genetics of people in general, they found a lot of us have these, by the way. 20 to 30% have one particular genetic error. And when they looked at autistic children, they found that there were quite a number of these genetic errors that mirrored the biochemistry that was discovered uh, back around 2004. Dr. Baki, did I say that correctly, or why don't you uh, help me out with that concept? 
Yeah, that that actually was uh, very well stated, and the the traffic analogy I think uh, helps perfectly describe what's going on. Um, Lynette, what'd you think? Did that make sense to you? <clears throat> I thought it made sense, and it brings up actually a couple of questions. Um, one of them being, okay, so what? So what will you do? Ah. Great right. question. That's my big question, actually. <laughs> my other one is, how is this all related to myelination? Because that's one of my favorite uh, problems that I'm always trying to solve. So I'd love you to hit on that. But mainly, so what? what, what how do you solve this? And, and it, does this make all of those other things, you know, if we fix the methylation system, then we don't have to have everyone taking enzymes and everybody taking SAMI and everybody taking B12 and everybody taking, like, talk to us about the answer. Sure. Perfect. Great, great, great answer. And, and, and here, I've got to make the analogy a little better because I made it sound like at the street light, the car uh, is just stopped and can't move forward. What really happens at each of those little street lights is the car is transformed. So you have a blue Cadillac, it approaches an intersection, it goes through that intersection, then it becomes a yellow Cadillac, okay? So it's transformed, just like the biomolecules are transformed into something else. So if you have a block in your ability to make yellow Cadillacs, or methyl B12, for example, then what you have to do is you have to give the patient the yellow Cadillacs or the methyl B12 they cannot produce on their own. You simply bypass it. You simply give what the body cannot produce, and then that molecule goes on its merry way and is converted to other things, and function is restored. Does that answer your question? Yes, it does. So you identify with your various tests which things, which particular parts of the methylation pathway are being um, negatively or functioning improperly or missing or whatever, and then you put that in. Exactly. And Dr. Baki, explain to us what happens when instead of a problem of, of uh, slowness or inability to rapidly make something, if it happens too quickly, what do you do for that? Yeah, actually, uh, that's a, a great question because that also can happen within the methionine pathway. Um, and there's a particular enzyme um, called CBS, which if you have a polymorphism with this gene, the enzyme actually you is You say all these science words really, really well. It sounds really awesome when you say them, by the way. I'm sitting there, oh, well, that's how you pronounce that. Okay, go on. Well, thank you very much. Um, yes, yeah, so CBS um, actually requires a couple of cofactors. Uh, one is B6 and the other is serine. Um, and perhaps many of your listeners are, are familiar with phosphatidyl serine, uh, which is a supplement that I, I think perhaps some of them are, are probably giving to their children and, and maybe they're taking uh, themselves. Um, it's very important because those two elements combine uh, with homocysteine uh, to make downstream products in the transsulfuration pathway. If you have an upregulation, though, with that enzyme, with CBS, go ahead. The key word is sulfur. I want to make sure that Lynette yeah. that. So okay. there's a pathway called sulfuration pathway. And in some people, that pathway works a little too fast. And now I'll let Dr. Baki finish it because he's a, he's a genius at this thing. Okay. So what you end up doing um, in a treatment protocol, uh, normally B6 is a beneficial uh, nutrient for the vast majority of the population. However, if you have a CBS polymorphism, B6 can actually be detrimental to your health. You can get, yeah, if you have too much B6, you end up with proprioceptive blindness. Is that, correct? Is that not correct? Yeah, absolutely. But you can also end up with uh, too much sulfur byproducts uh, that your body has to manage. And sulfur in excess, when it's not making uh, important sulfur end products like glutathione, can be detrimental to your health. And in fact, sulfites in particular uh, activate the fight or flight response in patients. So you'll end up with someone who has um, adrenal exhaustion uh, as, uh, as a result of having a CBS polymorphism that goes untreated for a number of years. Uh, so the way that we, tr we proceed with this particular treatment protocol uh, is to first limit dietary intake of sulfur, which in and of itself is a profound impact 
on a number of our patients, regardless of their diagnoses. And again, we're not dealing with diagnoses here. We're dealing with underlying biochemical dysfunction. Right. Uh, so we limit sulfur. We make sure that they're not taking in excess B6. So that would be uh, you know, 50 or 100 milligrams per day. We limit it to 12 and a half, perhaps 25. Uh, and more importantly, we provide the bioactive form of B6, which is P5P. And that's something the body actually makes from B6, uh, dietary intake of B6. Um, and there's actually been a couple of studies in autistic children where they determined, and this is an aside, uh, that versus controls, autistic children had much lower levels of P5P than did those um, control patients. So in this particular case, we would supply uh, the patient with P5P, the biologically active form of B6, in relatively low doses, uh, to ensure that other biochemical transformations in the body that depended on having P5P uh, had sufficient intake, um, but also so that we limited the upregulation. Uh, the other thing that we would do then is to focus on other methylation pathway abnormalities that are pushing even more of this homocysteine down the transsulfuration pathway. So we redirect, in the traffic analogy, we redirect away from the intersection where we're getting problems and we have these, this congestion and these accidents occurring, we redirect them and detour them back up to methionine. And we do that through two enzymes. One is methionine synthase and the other is BHMT, which is betaine homocysteine methyltransferase. Um, so there's a lot of blocking and tackling. This is really a, a chess game uh, that has to be played and, and really rooted at, at, at the center of this is going to be their genetic uh, their genetic evaluation. Then we look at their biochemical um, capabilities, what they're doing at the present time whenever we complete the evaluation. And then we proceed with a treatment protocol that addresses not only their biochemical imbalances, but also their genetic weaknesses that are uh, eliminated in their, in their testing. So what uh, I'm really liking about what I'm hearing is <clears throat> that it's so clear why you can't just grab the new kid on the block and think that your, B, you know, your methylated B12 is going to solve the problem or way back when everybody was giving tons of B6 or, like you said, vitamin D or hyperbaric oxygen chambers. Or, um, because as you talk about all this, it's very clear that it just depends. <laughs> it, it, all it really does. Depends. Yeah. And if we don't know which thing it is, it's really a game of hit or miss. And you could get lucky, but most likely you're just going to be giving your kids a lot of stuff. That, that, that's exactly right. When you look at the genetics, it's almost like looking at an x-ray of a broken bone and saying, oh, you've got a broken bone. How do you know? I'm looking right at it. There's your broken bone. When you look at the genetic results, you say, oh, you've got a, uh, an enzyme here that's not working. We'll do this. You've got one that's too fast over here. You've got to stop your sulfur intake. Little go easy on the B6. So you have something here. We'll give you that. So you're just simply looking right at the circuit diagram, so to speak, the, the actual pathways, uh, and you're definitively um, creating a plan, and it's different for every patient. Um, and that, that's, the, um, that's the excitement of, um, uh, of what we do. And, the, and, the, and going, getting back to autism, uh, almost, uh, I believe almost 100% of autistic children um, have these genetic errors, as do other people. ADHD patients have these. Rheumatoid patients have them. We have migraine patients that have them. Uh, doctor, to tell a story about this, um, to switch. Oh, a little... my goodness. I just wrote down, ask for a story. <laughs> doctor, uh, doctor, so please tell a story. This is a great story. This is amazing. We had a patient in, I believe, California who came to us. Um, so they went to our website and they, they logged in and we uh, looked at their case, and in essence, um, they were having horrific migraines. Nothing was working whatsoever. And then uh, Dr. Baki listened very carefully to the foods they were eating, and I'll let him finish the story. Yeah, th thank you, Dr. Rizakis. This is actually um, really intriguing because this patient had, was 53 or is 53 years old, um, had been sick for 15 years, tremendous brain fog, fatigue, migraines. Um, and their quality of life had completely deteriorated. And uh, seemingly overnight, they had no explanation. 
uh, they had visited a number of physicians across the country, uh, specialists, neurologists, endocrinologists, and no one could provide any answers. Um, and further, the, the, the more they got into uh, traditional medicine and, and some of the, uh, uh, the therapies that were prescribed, the, the worse she actually became. Um, and so when she came to us, she had what we always do in evaluating each patient is to look at their personal health history, uh, to figure out what supplements, drugs, foods uh, they have sensitivities to or intolerance to. And uh, invariably, a story can be told in, in evaluating that, hi that history. And in this particular patient's case, uh, it became very clear that the, the, the thread that bound and, and told this story was that sulfur was a tremendous problem for this patient. Um, and I think as recently as four months before they came to see us, um, she had gone in for a chelation therapy, um, which is something that Lynette, we had talked about previously. Right, right. Uh, and in this particular patient's case, uh, she became extremely ill after the, the chelation treatment. And the chelation included some of the normal uh, chelation agents that are used in addition to glutathione. Um, and glutathione, as we all know, in, in the cell is very important. Um, but when it's administered exogenously, so it's given an IV form or pill form, it doesn't always end up doing or getting to the desired location in the cell because there are a lot of things that supplements and, and IVs have to traverse on their way to getting to the location in the body where they actually can do their job. And in this particular patient's case, uh, she became violently ill. So uh, what we did is we determined just empirically from all of this data that we needed to proceed with a sulfur elimination uh, diet plan. Uh, and this is before any of her genetic results were known. Of course, she com she's completing all of the testing, and that includes methylation testing, neurotransmitter testing, and genetic evaluation. Um, and so as we're awaiting these results, we, we went ahead and told her, let's eliminate sulfur from your diet. Um, and this was intriguing to her because she had a lot of sulfur that she was ingesting. And, and most prominently in that was a green drink that she was taking every day that consisted of things like kale, spinach, um, and uh, collard greens, among other fruits and vegetables. Mm -hmm. um, and this had been recommended to her by a number of well-meaning practitioners. Um, because there are obviously a number of nutrients in there that are beneficial to everyone. Right, right, right. Um, but to her, uh, there are uh, very high levels of, of free sulfur uh, also in those vegetables, which for you and I is probably very beneficial. Well, she, long story short, she stopped drinking these green drinks. She stopped ingesting sulfur uh, in a variety of sources. And three weeks later, she called us back and said she was 80% better and she hadn't even started any of her program supplements. It was simply by eliminating what, for most people, is a very nutritious part of their diet, uh, and that's ingesting because specific Because of vegetables. the knowledge you already have about exactly. the particular Exactly, precisely. So, yeah. And so that told us the story that likely she is going to have, uh, in fact, I'm, I'm certain that she's going to have uh, a polymorphism with her CBS enzyme because it's working too fast. And the problem is, is that the combined effects of the dietary intake of sulfur and the excess sulfur that her body is making was too much for her. It was overwhelming her body's capacity to efficiently manage it. And that's really what this blocking and tackling is about. It's not that the greens are bad for her. It's that we have to address first the underlying problem that she has. We need to fix the rest of her methylation pathways. And then over her. time, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And then uh, over time, she's probably going to be able to start consuming some of these greens again without any effect because the excess won't be a problem. And that's okay, really I've got to tell you guys, we are completely convinced. I'm positive that every single person listening is completely convinced that you know your stuff and that you have something special to offer. So <laughs> that's perfect because we're out, almost out of time here. I want, um, before I say goodbye to you and thank you so much, tell us about how people can get a hold of you. Sure. Um, our reason for existing is basically to take the science that we talked about tonight and deploy it anywhere in the United States. And to do that, we built a sophisticated uh, telemedicine system, which is located on the Internet. And as you heard earlier, we're called XR, the XR Institute. XR is the opposite of RX. 
That's how we named ourselves because we believe that XR is, is all about uh, optimizing optimizing the physiology of patients. And um, can you hear oh, some background noise here? Yeah, I, a, I hear it too. I don't know what it um, is. So I don't know where that's coming from, but anyway. So the website is xrmd.com. xrmd.com is, okay. is the website where we're located. And uh, if, if people go to that website and register, then what will happen is they can put in their entire medical history, and we will then talk to them and see if we can help them or not. Uh, well, that, that's, that's wonderful. So that makes you international in a sense. I mean, anybody anywhere could do that. That's awesome. What about if they, if they did that and then they wanted to get tests with you guys? Would that be possible from far away? Uh, yes, I'm sorry. That background noise just dissipated. Um, you guys have ADHD because you're being so distracted by this background. I'm just kidding. Well, look, <laughs> I'm just look, Dr. Baki wants to work me up, actually, so we will find <laughs> Yeah, I do, actually. That, that's Come on, ongoing, stay with me. Uh, We're trying to end the show. <laughs> right. uh, we, we are international. We, we treat people all, all over the world. We have a clinic, actually, as far away as Cyprus and uh, Greece and uh, other places. Anybody, where, wherever there's Internet, wherever there's English spoken, um, people can go into the, uh, to the website at xrmd.com. Uh, put in their simple demographic data, and then um, we will walk them through the process by which we can get laboratory studies done, get their medical history, and then develop these important programs to balance out their their body chemistry and methylation. That is awesome. So, Lynette, I think you had a question, too, about the the testing specifically. We actually carry uh, most of the test kits in the office at our home office in Cleveland, and we would mail them to the patient, and you would simply need a phlebotomist in your local area that would do the blood draw, and you would simply mail the test kits back to the test center uh, for the evaluation to be completed. Um, Now, with the genetic test kits, those are actually a finger prick, and you deposit a spot on a card in the comfort of your home, so you wouldn't actually even have to go uh, to a test center for the genetic evaluation, only for the methylation and neurotransmitter testing, and any basic serum workup that we might uh, might request, which would involve uh, looking at, depending on the age of the patient, obviously, a hormonal profile, including thyroid and adrenal function, uh, in addition to metabolic and CBC and ferritin and, and some of the other basic Okay, and A, B, C, and D, E, F, and, and you guys are awesome, and okay, everybody, somebody, somebody out there better try this out um, and report back to me. That's like a call to action, guys. Um, I, I, we're out of time. We've got to go. I want to have you back another time, though. You're brilliant. Um, thank you, thank you, thank you for being a part of this show, and we will be continually in touch, I promise. It was fun. Thank you. All right. Great That's time. XR, thank you. XR, guys, XR. Okay, 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 okay. It is time for me to bump the great guest giveaway because those two wonderful doctors from the XRMD.com website that's international, and of course they have a clinic and they do all the lab stuff and they tell you what to do, but the important thing is that no matter where you are, you can get their help, and they were way, way too interesting for me to hang up on quickly, so we are going to bump the great guest giveaway, which is okay, because her product is so unique and interesting, I might just have to highlight it next week to make up for it. Um, We're going to go straight to stories from the I have a good one, and this one has nothing at all to do with autism and nothing at all to do with anything that I've personally experienced, but it does have a lot to do with our show. There was, I, I don't know if you recall, but there was a point during the show when they talked about, I believe it might have been Dr. Baki, that was talking about Lister. Well, every time I hear his name, I think, I wonder where that's where Listerine came from. But anyway, so Dr. Lister is the one that is famous for bringing the idea forward as far as washing your hands and keeping the germs down, and he created a special product for all of this, and it was, he was received on it, even though at first the medical community fought him. But he's actually not the first one to go and do this battle, the first fellow to do that. And at one point they were simultaneously fighting the good fight on this. 
Um, but the first fellow to do this, uh, to my knowledge, was uh, Dr. Semmelweis. And the reason that I find him super, super interesting is because of the way that his career went. So I'm going to tell it like a story. If I get a couple of little bits wrong, he's long dead, so he probably can't come and yell at me. But this is how it basically goes. So he's in, um, in the 1800s, and he's, and he's noticing something about uh, childbed fever. And what's happening is that women are dying in childbirth. And he notices that the ones that are dying in childbirth are the ones that are attended by a doctor and in a hospital. Not so much the ones, at least of childbed fever, not so much the ones that are uh, being attended at home with a midwife. So even if it's a, um, at home and a doctor rushes there to do it, there's more likelihood of childbed fever. Well, this seems a bit curious to him. Um, and as he looks into it, he discovers that even if it's in the hospital, if it's not the doctor doing it, if it's the midwife doing it, the child has a greater chances of survival, and so does the, the mom. So, you know, this is, of course, alarming to him, and he starts investigating. And what he realizes is that the germ, which isn't believed in yet, remember, so it's, a, it's just a series of coincidences. It's great observational skills that lead to this. But it seems to him that the women are dying of the same thing or the same bacteria that is in corpses. And that you can only, this bacteria at that time, as far as they knew, you can only get it when you're working with a corpse if you get cut and infected. So he puts it together and that, oh, my goodness, the doctors are working on corpses and then they're going and delivering babies. This probably isn't a good idea. Maybe they should... La, 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 wash their hands before doing so. Well, this causes huge outcry at the time. Um, he's at the Vienna General Hospital in Austria. It's 1847 when this is going down, and he's like, oh, my goodness, you know, you, you really need to, to start washing your hands. And all the, the outcry was huge. People called them names, they were incensed, they were upset. They were so upset um, that his life path becomes, uh, well, really a very sad one. He, he continues to fight this fight. He gets his own hospitals. He proves over and over again that the, the odds of death are markedly reduced, markedly reduced. I mean, it's obvious numbers. Um, by the act of, you know, keeping things clean. It wasn't just washing the hands, it was washing the sheets. It was like he, and they just kept thinking he's more and more and more crazy. But there's a reason, too. There's a, it's like there's always, it takes two people to dance, right? So there's a thing they now call the Semmelweis reflex. He became famous not for solving the riddle, but for the state that people are in when they fight against something just because they don't want to know it, and they do it as a group, an established group fighting the established norms. In this case, the medical community fighting the idea of washing the hands. And um, so he became famous at, one, you know, at some level. But part of the problem for him was his attitude. He was angry, he was incensed, which you all should be if you're watching people die. Um, but he was that way in their face and, and throwing, you know, roots, you know, calling them murderers, things like this. And he became known for someone who was truly, truly not uh, handleable. Uh, so cut to... The point when um, his career is, you know, long gone. He's 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 fought this fight, and and the community has gotten very upset. And what they end up doing is getting their hands on him um, and throwing him into an insane asylum. They get you know family involved, and and they get him committed. And in the asylum, he's beaten, and ironically, gets an infection, and dies from the very same. Um, it's a type of streptococcus bacteria that he had been discovering in the first place. So that his whole life went full circle, and he never managed to get it accepted. Whereas Lister was a cool dude. 
he had some panache about him and he knew enough to network and to carefully um, draw people in. And, and it was still a challenging thing for him to get across, but he won the battle. Why? Well, what I just mentioned, he was a cool dude. Some of them had kind of broken the ice a bit so they could be more angry with him if they wanted to be angry. So there's that. Um, and what does that have to do with today's question, the cope or cure? Everything. So here's where we come back to autism. There's an awful lot of the semmelwise reflex that happens in autism. There's an awful lot of, no, it can't be cured. Uh, no, you can't get at the main thing. And But at the same time, there's a lot of wishing and hoping and praying. I'm certain that every one of the husbands and children of the dead women who you know, lost their lives in childbirth were hoping and wishing and praying. But the community that was supposed to support them and help them was doing a semi-rise reflex dance. And I think we're living in that world right now. And sometimes we contribute to that dance by being angry and shaking our fists. And I know I talk about this a lot, but I really think that it's part of the problem. So, folks, on the question of cope or cure, number one, if you find that your doctors don't know anything, you hear that a lot from moms, they don't know anything, maybe they don't. Move on. Number two, are you looking for cope or cure? And you need to know which one you're after. If you're looking for cure, then you're going to be, be interested in different things than if you're just looking how to cope. If you're looking how to just teach skills to your children, then those things exist already. Just go and get yourself an ABA classroom and, and, you know, and work with that. But if you're looking for something bigger, if you've got bigger hopes and dreams, then you need to keep your ears open and not do a semi-rise reflex dance. The community at that time did it because they were complicit in deaths. And if they admitted that it was germs and they should wash their hands, each and every doctor who admitted that, that had ever had a woman die at his hands, had to recognize his own complicity. And he's not going to want to do that. And that exists in every era, every time we ask people to do it differently. So keep that in mind. Don't be incensed. Just move on if you are looking for cure. I think whether it can be cured or whether you just have to cope, I think going after the symptoms is the right approach. I love what these two doctors had to say. I hope that you, at least some of you follow up on it. I personally work with symptoms, never with the diagnosis. I talk about the diagnosis because it's what we are all gathered around to talk about. But when I'm working with a client, I always just look at symptoms, and it's extremely, extremely beneficial. So good luck with that. Um, that was the, today's story, the old Semmelwise reflex dance. Don't be part of it. And thank you for listening. I'm Lynette Louise. If you weren't here listening to me, I would just be spinning in circles and talking to myself. Thank you for joining the show today. Lynette is the author of the refreshingly honest and at times hilarious new book, Miracles Are Made, A Real-Life Guide to Autism. You can purchase this and other materials by looking on the webtalkradio.net website and clicking on the covers. You can also click through to her Facebook page and check out any show you may have missed by looking in the archives. We'll see you soon for another edition of A New Spin on Autism. Answers. Spinning in circles and talking to myself. Spinning in circles and talking to myself. Spinning in circles and talking to myself. I can't hear you.